Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the, um, I think this is a 10th class. Uh, it's about a third of the way through our structured study of jhana meditation. Um, and this is going to be another sutta uh, that has similar or almost exactly the same material as other suttas in this series. Uh, this one with the emphasis on uh, recognizing uh, deepening concentration by recognizing the, uh, the, the defined levels of meditative absorption of which the Buddha teaches there are four, not, not more than four. The only reason I say that is some traditions teach almost an endless list of meditative absorption, which is, uh, it, it, that just introduces more grasping after our meditation practice rather than using it for the sole purpose of deepening concentration and also um, to recognize that that concentration is used for a very specific purpose, to hold in mind, a well-concentrated mind is able to hold in mind what it wants, to hold in mind the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path as a complete Dhamma practice. So by recognizing these deepening levels of jhana, we will be um, reassuring ourselves that our practice is bearing fruit. We'll have a benchmark in which to always measure it against but also, and probably more importantly, we'll, we'll be able to recognize the establishment of these different levels of jhana or just a well-concentrated mind off our cushion because that gives us the, con- the, the confidence to know that we can practice in this moment rather than um, always having to think we got to go back to our, our cushions and our meditation practice as our soul practice. This gives us an understanding that our practice is to be, our concentration is, is to be developed on our cushion so that we can take it off our cushion. Our practice is much broader. It is moment by moment uh, rather than just the time we spend on our meditation cushion. I think I made that clear with a lot, probably a lot more words than I needed to use. But I'm starting this uh, just a little bit into it because at the very beginning, the introduction, uh, it's just a lot of back and forth words about where we are, um, and it really doesn't relate, it really is unnecessary. So, uh, the Sama approaches um, Ananda. Venerable Ananda, sir, is there a single quality taught by the Buddha to be developed so that the unreleased mind of a Dhamma practitioner who is mindful, ardent, alert, and resolute in the Dhamma would attain release and security from the yoke of clinging to views rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths? So the Sama understands the basic practice that we're, we're practicing the Dhamma to end ignorance or the yoke of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Ananda answers, Yes, there is, friend the Sama. When a Dhamma practitioner, secluded from sensuality and other unskillful qualities, meaning we've established our meditation practice, we've begun practice, we're on our cushion, isolated or secluded from the world, they enter and remain in the first jhana. So we do this every time we take, we, we have a meditation session, we take a breath. 
the first jhana is now established. And so the teaching here is to recognize what we've done. This first jhana is experienced as rapture, born of that very seclusion. So rapture is an archaic word, excuse me, that we had an interesting discussion on, I think last class or maybe two classes ago, about the use of the word. And so rapture can mean the second coming of Christ. Of course, we're not talking about that, or in general, the apocalypse, uh, the Christian apocalypse. We're not talking about that. It's another application of the word. Uh, the basic meaning of the word rapture is joyful engagement with. And so in the, in the Christian sense, it would be joyful engagement with whatever you think that second coming might be, um, or joyful engagement with our Dhamma practice. And so I continue to work, use the word because it's used so often in other translations um, that I wanted to maintain that consistency, that what we're talking about in all practices, even though they're, they're all, those are different, we're talking about just establishing that notion of joyful engagement. So how do we get there? How is that, that initial breath, the establishment of joyful engagement with the Dhamma, because we have taken refuge? And there is no joyful engagement in the Dhamma unless we have a basic understanding of what we're doing. And if that's not yet present in the beginning of practice, keep coming because it will become apparent. But refuge means we've taken refuge in or safety in the idea of. So the idea of getting home for, in, a, in, a, in a bad snowstorm, we just want to make it home without getting running into a tree or something. We're seeing our home as a true refuge, a place of safety and comfort in that storm that we're trying to get through. We look at the triple refuge in the same way. We take safety and comfort in the notion, the idea, more than a notion, more than an idea, and the understanding that a human being actually awakened, gained full human maturity. We take refuge or safety and comfort in that he left his teachings. They're still here today in this room and on our website. And we take refuge in a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. In order to have that triple refuge available to us, we have to have a well-informed and well-focused Sangha, don't we? And that is one of the things I, I feel so fortunate to have. Because I bounced around from one let's call them a meditative group after another, never finding a true refuge because there wasn't the establishment of a true refuge. It was everything other than what the Buddha taught. And that's not to put down other practices. It's just to make the important point that they're practicing something different than what I believe and what we teach here is what the Buddha actually taught. So this jhana, this first jhana is experienced as rapture born of that very seclusion. I understand what I'm doing and I'm joyful about it. I'm, it's, I'm not doing this out of some um, uh, grim determination, a, a stoic determination. Some of you know what stoicism is all about. Because I feel that there's value in just doing something. Well, that's not Dhamma practice. Dhamma practice is a gentle practice. It's a knowing that I'm doing this because I'm developing a true refuge in my own mind for my own life through understanding. This rapture born of seclusion is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. So in meditation, the first jhana is established by. And directing my thought away from the constant chatter in my mind back to my breath. And in so doing, in that first jhana, it's natural for us to be evaluating or judging my practice. Am I doing it right? 
Is it going to bear fruit? It, it, this, I just think this is too boring. I can't do it anymore. That's all part of the first jhana. And if you experience it, good. Because you're recognizing the first jhana. If you're recognizing disturbance in your mind while you're practicing your meditation and you come back to your breath, you're reestablishing the first jhana. And that first breath, coming back to your breath, getting out of your, the story in your mind, that returning breath should have the quality of rapture, of joyful engagement. Because I'm having the most important and powerful tool I can ever use to regain my life and my mind, my breath. I'm distracted. I hope it doesn't rain on my motorcycle ride later today. Distraction. Come back to my breath. I'm thinking about work tomorrow. Take a breath. Come back to my breath. I'm establishing and reestablishing the refuge. And in my mind, I have joyful engagement readily available to me at any moment because that's what I consider this practice to be. I am fortunate to have this practice. I know what it's going to bring me. And I'm doing it right now. <sighs> Dhamma practice. Come back to the breath, recognizing in this moment, I am a reference point to what's occurring. Despite the pleasure of this first jhana, they understand this first jhana is fabricated, impermanent, and subject to cessation. Why is that important? Because I recognize that in the second breath, I may be deepening my concentration. As they continue meditation, they enter and remain in the second jhana. This second jhana is experienced as rapture and pleasure, now born of concentration. So how do we develop that second quality of rapture? First seclusion and now concentration. By recognizing it, by following direction. I recognize that I've established that second jhana. How? The second jhana of concentration, the joy of concentration is now permeating my entire mind and body. I recognize it. And in this breath, it's permeating my entire mind and body. There should be. You're doing it. There's no magic in what you're doing. You're experiencing deepening concentration because of your practice. It's not magic. Despite the pleasure of this second jhana, they understand the second jhana is also fabricated and permanent, and it too is subject to cessation. So stop grasping after that minor accomplishment of, of a little bit of concentration. There's more practice to do. Continuing meditation, they enter and remain in the third jhana, which is equanimous and mindful. Equanimous, it's balance. It's gentle. It's a pleasant abiding. With a fading of rapture, this pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. Excuse me. So now rapture is fading. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that my practice is now losing joy. It means it's no longer requiring that um, recognition of joyful engagement. My, my concentration is deepening. So there no longer even needs to be that minor internal motiva motivation of joyful engagement. Now I'm simply equanimous. There's a difference. There's a, a qualitative difference between um, rapture and equanimous, isn't there? 
because equanimous is just balance. It's not joyful, it's not lacking joy. It's just present. This is the recognition of deepening concentration. It no longer has an emotion, a thought attached to a feeling as a component of it. There's no time frame, there's no... Yes, thank you. ...need to recognize even that you can quickly move from the first to the third and back in, in, in an instant. Yeah. Brian, did you hear that, what David said? So, yeah, thank you, David. We this there's no um, there's no overarching time frame to meditation practice. In other words, the Buddha doesn't say meditate for 18 weeks and you'll awaken, but he does give some guarantees that I won't get into. And he also I've never read any um, uh, directive towards amount of time that we sit in meditation. So again, the Buddha is, is by inference leaving it up to our own good practice. So we develop a structure here beginning with short periods, 5, 10, 15, 20, building up to approximately 30 minutes, which, by the way, is my regular practice is 30 minutes twice a day. Sometimes I'll meditate longer just because I feel like it. But by and large, 30 minutes twice a day suits me well, and it should suit you all well. If you find you want to meditate for longer periods of, of time, um, if you're in beginning stages of meditation practice, say within the first year, talk to a teacher about that. Um, it, because it's, in the beginning practice, it's probably not necessary. And in, uh, uh, after you've developed a measure of concentration, say after 12 months, a year or two years, it still won't be necessary, but you might want to. 30 minutes twice a day is a, is a strong and powerful meditation practice jhana practice within the larger structure. So that's important to remember. It's not just meditation. It's meditation for a purpose, to deepen concentration. Continuing meditation, they enter remain in the third jhana, which is equanimous and mindful. It is a pleasant abiding. With the fading of rapture, this pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. Despite the pleasure of this third jhana, they understand this third jhana is, is also fabricated. It's impermanent and it is subject to cessation probably in the next breath. Continuing meditation, they enter and remain in the fourth jhana, which is now pure equanimity. Pure equanimity. It is mindful. It is refined. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. Imagine that. And you don't have to imagine it because you all experience it every time you meditate. You might not have noticed it before, but start noticing it now, and you will, because you'll be focused on it. Neither pleasure nor pain is seen. Um, has anybody, and just, just shout it out, if anybody not experienced this four jhana in their jhana practice, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. Andrew, you, you have, uh, and I'm not, I'm not putting you up against the wall, you mean you never? In one breath, you've never noticed the absence of pleasure or pain in that breath, in that, while you're mindful of your breath? On one breath, yes. That's it. And, need, and you need to go no further. Because if you notice it in your next breath, you're distracted by pleasure or pain, which is, in two short words, what we're here to avoid or recognize that we're caught up in it and come back to your breath. So what you just described is the fourth jhana. None of this is established outside of our breath or being mindful of our breath. We're at least having a concentrated attachment to our breath. 
So as you continue practice, that's, that sensation that you, all, you yourself are aware of is what you will be building your entire practice on. So it's important to recognize that, yes, Andrew, you've achieved the four levels of jhana meditation. As David just said, and it's, it's, uh, there's some synchronicity there in the timing, mm-hmm. it, the length of time doesn't matter, just that you recognize it. You have achieved the four levels of jhana in your jhana practice, please. Yeah. And, and the goal is to, beyond the first breath only, to achieve that fourth level jhana um, sensation, is it not? So that With, without grasping after it, but to recognize yeah. that it's, mm-hmm. that you're developing it. So yes, it's such an important question. Recognize it in the one breath, but also recognize that it's building, and that at some point you'll come back to your meditation and you'll resonate you'll recognize this pleasant abiding, but you'll also recognize that must have been a hundred breaths since the last time I was distracted. Mm-hmm. That's jhana practice. Ah, but see. even that thought, that wow, it must have been a hundred breaths or 15 minutes or a half hour, is part of that recognition. Why? First on your cushion, so now Andrew, when you're buzzing down the road and you're really in the mood, but you have a thought about, boy, I gotta, I gotta get back because of this and that, You've got some soup on, you'll take a breath and say, I'm just here, I'm just riding. Or whatever it is, or you're talking with a customer or you're in a meditation class and you recognize that you're out of that, you're recognizing pleasure or pain, and now it will simply come quicker. That refuge will be more um, uh, available to you the deeper your your meditation, your jhana practice is, and the more... um, uh, establish your Eightfold Path practices. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, and that's just practice. So you're describing it. Did anybody else have an answer, to, like, a, like a no to that, that you, you haven't experienced this fourth level? Yeah, and again, it should be seen as, um, not as accomplishment, but, excuse me, um, it, it's just run-of-the-mill practice. It's, it's ordinary that you experience it, but it's important to recognize it. There's nothing... There's nothing special about um, jhana meditation except it's the vehicle towards liberation. So that makes it special. The practice itself is just being mindful of your breath and being mindful that concentration is increasing because of that. Despite the pleasure of this fourth jhana, they understand even this fourth jhana is fabricated, impermanent, and subject to cessation. I get a, a uh, an argumentative email every now and then about, well, what about the other levels of jhana? Because there are some suttas um, and even a couple of sutras. The Abhidhamma is one um, that talks about an infinite level of deepening concentration. The Buddha never talks about anything but these four in the context, which, which means he's saying this is as far as you need to go in your recognition of concentration. Because anything beyond that, you've already established, established this fourth level. Remember that Andrew just described it. Neither pleasure nor pain is seen. Meaning, grasping after pleasure nor, or pain, or uh, uh, grasping after avoiding ambiguity or boredom, is gone. In that moment, the, awakened, the quality of an awakened mind is established. There's nothing beyond that except to build on that. But that's what ongoing practice is about. So the fourth level of jhana is is the is a sufficient level of concentration that, that Andrew just described. It, it, it's sufficient in one breath that we take it off our cushion and now use that to support 
the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path, which means we're using that, that concentration born of one breath to recall, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. What is occurring in this moment is framed by the Eightfold Path. And again, now we can understand why we need concentration. It takes concentration to have a, a broad enough and supple enough mind to be able to hold in mind these simple eight principles, meaning a well-concentrated mind now framed by these other seven factors coalescing in right view. This is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. So whenever we're distracted, we know we're caught up in eye-making, we want, we want something out of this moment, meaning I need to feed my ego in this moment, or this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. And now I'm just a reference point. Now I can, whatever is occurring in this moment, I have now given myself the ability to access all that I am, all the knowledge that I have about being a human being, being a gentle, honest, caring, compassionate, understanding human being into this moment as I address you or you or you or each and every moment of my life. Everybody get that? So we have to prepare ourselves for that moment. This is what Dharma practice is for. This is what concentration is for. This is what recognizing deepening levels of concentration or in one sentence to recognize deepening concentration. Because that gives us the inner poise, the wherewithal to get up off our cushion and bring the Dhamma into each and every moment of our life. As concentration deepens, their mind is now unbound. It's spacious. We're taking that unbound, spacious mind off of our cushion into our mundane moment-by-moment life. This mind is free of the confining yoke of ignorance. They are imbued with unlimited goodwill. We don't have to meter our goodwill. We could just be that. We can be free of ill will. Why? Because it's simply an expression of who we are. We don't have to conjure it up. We don't have to decide who's deserving of our goodwill and who isn't. It's simply who we are. It's our nature. That's liberation, folks. They are imbued with unlimited goodwill, with unlimited compassion, with unlimited empathetic joy. Empathetic joy. There is no true empathy unless there's joy attached to it. This is, an, this is a, uh, a practice of, of limited, uh, uh, limited acceptance of clinging. It's okay to have clinging attached to your, uh, to your empathy because you know that your understanding of other people's suffering is what's bringing the incredible poignancy, which is another word for joy in this moment, and it's poignant, <coughs> excuse me, it's poignant, why? Because in this moment, I'm understanding that I am present for my life. And I think I might have said this, I can't remember if I wrote this down as something I want to write, or write or more about, or I said it in class that um, I did, and I was talking about how some might notice that I'm uh, a little bit more teary than at other times, and most of you said, no, you're not, you're just as whiny as you always are. Um, I think I am, but really what I'm describing is just more and more of an immediate feeling of what's occurring in my life. And really what I'm describing there is it, it's astonishing to me how meaningful each and every moment is. And sometimes it brings me to the point of tears 
not because it's sad, because it's just so incredible to be present for it. And it's, it's, it, it, it's become um, not, not distracting, but it's happening more and more in, in seemingly innocuous moments that, that are surprising because of the poignancy that they're bringing me, which is really just another way of saying how wonderful it is to be present for my life. And so I can tell you how wonderful it is to be present for your life. And there is no, there's no rapture beyond that. There's no joyful engagement beyond that because there's nothing beyond being alive for this present moment. What else could there be? No matter what, uh, what did Maxwell Maltz, Maxwell Maltz in a, and Abraham years ago we used to talk about peak experiences and generating peak experiences but what good is it having peak experiences if you can't understand it correctly even winning the lottery should be seen as this is not me this is not mine this is not what I am it's interesting that many many lottery winners lose their mind and have lost all their money in a few years sometimes in a matter really if you do it just do a web search on it, google search and that's not to say that everybody who wins a lottery is going to blow it. But, I mean, hundreds of people have lost millions and millions of dollars in a few years simply because they had to use it to express themselves moment by moment. This is not me. This is not mine. Give me another something. Like, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. Or, my mind is equanimous and peaceful. What else can we add to you? What, or ask yourself this, what else can you add yourself to yourself to make yourself more in this moment? Nothing. You can have everything in the world. You could be someone, just to use as an, as an example, someone like our previous president and still not be satisfied with your life. Maybe I'm just using his outward appearance as an example. He seems to be dissatisfied in certain areas of his life despite being one of the richest people in the world. I've noticed that in a lot of very wealthy people. I've also met some very wealthy people that are peaceful. So again, having a lot of money is not a bar, but it could be. And having no money or nothing is not a bar, but it could be. It just depends on the level of your eye-making. So people under a bridge or at the highest penthouse have the ability to awaken. The setting has nothing to do with it. Or even just in ordinary middle-of-the-middle-class life, None of it matters. The Buddha taught awakening for all human beings in seven years or six years or five or four or three or two or one or even in this moment provided that we are well concentrated. That's the only caveat in all of the Dharma. It's the only thing we must do and then we can do the other things such as incorporating the other factors of the Eightfold Path. As concentration deepens, their mind is unbound, spacious, free of the continuing yoke of ignorance. They are imbued with unlimited goodwill, with compassion, with empathetic joy. Their mind is resting in equanimity. Resting in equanimity. Your mind is balanced. But resting in empathetic joy. There's no disturbance in that type of joy. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm over and over trying to describe something that is really indescribable, being present for this moment, and then this moment, and then this moment of our lives. It's not what's occurring, it's being present for what's occurring. And I wish someone had told me that 
when I was five or 10 or 15 years old. But the truth of the matter is I probably wouldn't have listened to it anyway. Like I didn't listen to anything back then. Uh, but maybe at 25, with me, probably not. But I notice some people are able to. But it does seem like, and I was talking with one of our younger students about this uh, yesterday, um, when you're in your early teens to through your 20s, um, the natural human way of being is you're now establishing yourself in the world. And so it's, it, it, it's seemingly much more difficult when you're in that quality of mind. But as you develop just a little bit of relative maturity, it does become... Um, I don't want to say easier, but it, it's easier to get your focus on recognizing eye-making. But again, this person is making great strides. The person I was referencing uh, is quite young, and they're making great strides in their Dhamma practice. I'm just saying that to, to make the correlation between awakening and full human maturity. Because as we start establishing that full human maturity, whether we're 23 or 63, that is what we're building on. So the recognition, again, is so important. Remaining well concentrated, they reach the end of the defilements of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. It's gone. Remaining well concentrated. That ongoing practice of remaining well concentrated, now incorporating the framework of the Eightfold Path, is the ending of the defilements. In this moment, there's no greed, there's no aversion, and there's no more deluded thinking. It's entirely possible, and you've all experienced the developing benefits of it for all human beings. The only aspect of that that holds anybody back is continuing right effort, meaning putting in the practice. If they do not reach the ending of the defilements right then and there, through their concentrated right effort, through their continued right effort, the five lower fetters will fall, fetters will fall away. Fetters mean just something that are um, uh, aspects of the quality of our mind and our behavior that are blocking us from developing full awakening. But again, the Buddha is reminding us, just keep going with your practice and these will fall away. Self-identification, right? Self-referential views. Grasping at rituals or practices. That is one of the most um, liberating teachings I ever came across because up until the point I understood this, my entire practice was either meditation alone and a wrong meditation practice, not jhana meditation, or grasping after rituals and practices, thinking that if I did enough bows and I was, in, I was respectful enough, um, and some of the practices, the way you sit was important. Uh, Zen practices like that in a lot of schools, you have to sit perfectly right. Or even internally, holding in mind Avalokiteshvara as a way of liberating my mind. These are all rituals and practices that the Buddha recognized and abandoned during his lifetime and told his students to do that people are still practicing today. And all of these things, these rites and rituals, are the greatest part of modern Buddhism. Modern Buddhism is mostly just meditation or a lack of meditation and an idea or a lot of rites and rituals. The, um, the tradition uh, lineage that I took my vows in and disavowed um, taught 
that once you take your initial vows, and this is what I was supposed to do for the next three years, was to do 103,000, or maybe 108,000, complete vows, meaning from the standing position, you fully face down on the floor, you touch your nose or your forehead to the floor, and you get back up. You do that 108,000 times to prove that you're worthy of Dharma practice, or Dharma practice, I should say, and then you can begin your practice in earnest. Well, I started doing that. And I, got, I think I got up to seven and realized this is not for me. And I abandoned Really, I mean, I, I, the idea of... I, I first started adding it up. You know, one, two, three, seven, wait. And it really was coming to grips. Well, when I stopped doing it, I had the notion that awakening isn't available to me because I'm not doing this. And it took me a while, even after I disavowed those vows to let go of the conditioning that there was more than just this practice. So even, even after I came across this and started developing it, writing it, restoring it, there were still aspects of my clinging mind thinking that there was more to do, or at least I had to work through this process internally to recognize, no, there's nothing more to do in this moment. Grasping at rituals and practices, doubt or uncertainty, one of the major schools, Zen schools, talks about part of their practice, in fact, initiating the practice, is to generate great doubt and go into your doubt and meditate on your doubt. Or we can do something simple is recognize and abandon doubt and uncertainty, which the Buddha taught us, which I'm teaching you. There's no value in understanding doubt except recognizing that that's a block to your practice, recognizing it and abandoning it. Sensual craving, the, on, the ongoing need for constant sensual stimulation. Something always has to be going on. Are you one of those people that always needs something going on in the background? You know, the TV or the radio or music or Facebook, Twitter, whatever the rest of those things are? If you are, do something. Turn your phone off for two hours and see if you can stand it. If you can, you're good to go. If you can't, you're just at the beginning of practice and you need it badly. Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. <laughs> Great book. And deluded thinking. Obviously, all of this is rooted in our thinking, so the abandoning of that, or the recognition that it is my deluded thinking, that's blocking me from practice. I, I can't do this for five minutes. I can't do this for ten minutes. I can't get to class. I'm too busy, etc., etc., etc. That's all your blocks to practice. It's not, pra it's not blocks inherent in the practice. If you're not practicing the Dhamma to the level that you think will bring you the benefit that you want, it's up to you to increase your Dhamma practice and increase your concentration. Because nobody else can do it for you, can you? You're here listening to me practicing the Dhamma because you want to do this. Give yourself a lot of credit for that. You're doing it because you want to do it. Nobody made you come here today. I don't think they did. I hope not. Because Dhamma practice doesn't work that way, does it? It's an aspect of right effort to practice the Dhamma. Furthermore, having, abandoning, having abandoned self-identification with form, having with this form, this is me, having abandoned aversion, having abandoned self-reference, now here and now there, everywhere, right here and in my imagination, where I think I might be in the future or in a future life, I abandon all of that and I unite my mind and my body. They enter and remain in the perception of the infinitude of space. Now the rest of this I'm going to lead read is where some people think is beyond where we go beyond meditation that we're supposed to use our meditation to escape this physical plane and somehow put ourselves in this plane 
And that was, that was what my meditation practice began as. I thought that that was the point. To escape this awful body and this awful mind, this body that was so prone to wrongness and inadequacy, and get out of it and get to some other place. Whether it was in this life or another life, I was confused about that. But I knew I had to do it because this sucked. And no practice could ever do it. And I was so fortunate that it couldn't because I would have completely lost my mind. And by the way, I know quite a few people that have lost their mind to that notion that there's nothing here on this world, that everything is in another world, that they don't function very well in this world. They might walk around with a, with a smile on their face, but it's a smile rooted in ignorance, not in understanding. It's a smile bought of desperation and isolation rather than deep engagement with this moment. I don't want to go too deep, too deep into it. There's a lot more left to get to. Get to. And I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to not read this section, I think, because it just gets into these different establishment and non-physical realms, but that's all we're talking about. So anything beyond this human life is something we don't go after. That's not concentration. Imagining myself in a future life where everything is wonderful and I'm sitting at the right hand of God is a great idea and you just lost your mind. Take a breath, get rid of it, and come back into this life. Even if it's true that somehow we can leave this life and because we've lived it within a certain set of commandments, we get to spend eternity sitting at the right hand of God. To me, that's a pretty horrible notion because I'd like I have a little bit more to do with eternity than sit. But if that's what you're after, okay, maybe you'll get it. But live this life first. Live this life first. Understand what it means. And if there truly is a God in heaven, I would think that he would want his children to have a life rather than stop thinking about getting somewhere else. Now, I let go of all those notions through the Dhamma. But it was hard to get through that. There were still notions years into Dhamma practice that I remember having a thought that somebody or something is watching me and seeing if I'm doing it right. And it took a while, and I didn't, I didn't do much about that except take a breath. But it was years into practice that I recognized that I hadn't had that thought in a long time. And so it's okay to have that, that salvation-rooted thought in your Dharma practice, but don't let it distract you. Because there is no salvation save what occurs within your mind. So none of those non-physical planes uh, do we chase after. Even here, they understand that any phenomena connected to the five clinging aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, or consciousness, is impermanent, stressful, a disease, painful, and affliction, and as such, it is anatta. It can't be self. It is not self. Anything that is a distraction at any point is not self. They disregard the phenomena, whatever it is, and incline their mind to the cessation of ignorance. Nothing remains to provoke the becoming of further ignorance and the birth of continued suffering. That's the only teaching, the only important teaching the Buddha ever gave on birth. What am I giving birth to in this moment? And that points to the potential that each and every moment holds. Each and every moment holds for each and every human being the potential to awaken or to continue the veil of ignorance. Most of us, in fact, I would say all of us in this room, don't know we have a choice. It's part of the human experience, seemingly, to not know you have a choice. 
Is that fair? No, it's not fair. But life is not supposed to be be fair. And a lot of the misery of human life came comes from the insistence that life be fair. Because when I insist that my life be fair, I'm always looking out there to compare fairness to something it can't be compared against. Meaning somebody else's life or what's occurring out in the world. It's a beautiful day. How come it's raining on me? That view is always self-referential. Always. It has to be. But we can take to the Dhamma and awaken and then we will enter into a pure, bright awareness, a pleasant abiding, totally unbound from clinging to wrong views, never to lose their mind again. Those are the Buddha's words. Never to lose their mind again. So what is he saying here in this sutta about jhana practice? He's saying in this context, keep doing jhana. Keep incorporating the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path. And you will enter a pure, bright awareness, a pleasant abiding, totally unbound from clinging to wrong views. And this is what I was looking for the whole time. From the time I took a drink and a drug to the time I developed the Dhamma to the point I could understand it, it was just this. I wanted a way to never lose my mind again. I didn't know that was what it was that I was looking for from the time I was very young to now. But again, think about it. What is the most important thing for you? To have control of your mind. And it's even taught today, and for my whole lifetime I've been feeling this kind of notion, that you shouldn't have control of your mind. You shouldn't want to control things. Well, we shouldn't, have, we shouldn't want to control things that we can control, meaning everything outside of myself. But I should want to learn to control my own mind. Why? Because it's my mind. Why wouldn't I want to learn to control it? And why didn't somebody teach me that I should want to control it? I mean, I heard things when I was losing my mind that control yourself. In fact, I heard that a lot. Control yourself. Control yourself. You're out of control. Well, I was. And some of the people that said that said it with good intention. But they couldn't tell me how to do it. Nobody could. And I bet you can feel, because of your own sensitivity, my pain, when people were telling me I had to stop losing control when I didn't know how to. And all that I could do was lose control. And it wasn't until I came to the Buddhist Dhamma that I could develop a calm and peaceful mind. We got to put a sign on meditation. Um, and develop a calm and peaceful mind and not be disturbed by somebody breaking glass all the time. Because it's not me. And so right now, you know, a few years ago, I might have gotten up and yelled at that person for disturbing the quality of my mind and felt justified. Of course, that person is just throwing out the garbage. It's just a good example, isn't it? There's no fault. I mean, and it did disturb me. You saw me jump. But that was the end of it. And I'm, I'm kind of glad. It was, it was another uh, synchronicity, wasn't it? Why lose my mind? Why should you lose your mind? All we had to do in that moment was take a breath and come back. Thank you. <laughs> this, my friend, is the single quality taught by the Buddha to be developed so that the unreleased mind of a Dhamma practitioner who is now mindful, ardent, alert, and resolute in the Dhamma would attain and... Re- it would attain release and security 
from the yoke of clinging to views rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. Upon hearing these words, the Sama remarked, Venerable Ananda, it is as if a Dharma practitioner were seeking a single opening onto treasure and all at once realized the eleven openings to the treasure. In the same way, I was seeking a single doorway to the ending of all fabrications. All at once, you taught me the eleven doorways I could take, all leading to a single point cessation of fabricated views. And those eleven doorways are the four levels of jhana, <clears throat> the four fabricated realms that are described here, but meaning any fabricated realm, get out of your imagination, and the three marks of existence, understanding and abandoning greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. Venerable Nanda, all true teachers deserve a fee. I will pay homage to you. I'm going really, to uh, abandon the rest of that because it's just the Sama that prepares a feast for everybody to enjoy. The point of that sutta, and, and this structured study is to first recognize the abandoning, the developing of ever-deepening concentration through recognizing these four levels and then recognize it off your cushion that yes, you are concentrated or that you're not. But now when you find yourself distracted in your day-to-day life, you know what to do. Like Andrew described, you'll take a breath, you'll unite your mind and your body and you will be in that moment experiencing what it means to have the quality of mind of an awakened human being. And that moment just builds one after another till that moment is a lasting moment of equanimity, of calm and peace. But you're all touching awakening in each and every jhana session and each and every time you come to jhana class. And every time that you recall, that's what mindfulness is about, right? Mindfulness means to recollect, recollect or to hold in mind, or recollect the refined mindfulness that defines this moment as this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. That's today's teaching. Hello, Brian. Hello. Uh, thank you for this. It, it reminds me of the uh, Satipatthana a bit where, where he's talking about the, the quality of mind throughout the Sutta and just being, being aware of that. Um, so I thought this was a great dovetail into how we started this a few weeks ago. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Brian. And, I, and the next class I believe is on the Patita Samapada Sutta, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew, it's a little and after 9.30, but thank you, Ryan. I know you yep. said you might have to go, but what do you think of oh. today's sutta? Well, uh, this, this teaching about uh, d- developing a refined concentration, deepening concentration is, is uh, uh, very important for, for me to learn because uh, Apart from meditation practice, so I understand how to achieve certain levels of jhana on certain occasions. In daily life, whenever speaking to somebody or hearing a lecture or hearing somebody else speak, concentrating on what they're saying to me, it has been difficult. So I'm, I'm trying to develop a means of paying attention. Uh, in a con- with a concentrated mind uh, to everything they say. Yeah. And is it simply a matter of being co- uh, conscientious of one's breathing during what they are telling me in order to hear everything they're saying or something else? Yeah. So, it's, it's something else. So in that moment when you're talking with someone and you're not listening to them, it's likely, unless there's something else going on, it's likely that you're also thinking of your response 
as they're talking. And instead of just listening. Yes. And yes. There's, there's all kinds of things going on, including a lack of trust in yourself that you might not be able to say the right thing. And listen. And I, I know it sounds too simplistic, Andrew, but when you think about what I just said, that the idea that you're talking to me and I'm thinking about the best thing I can say to you, I'm not listening and I'm caught up in eye-making, aren't yeah, I? Yeah. And so it, it, it seems like almost too much to do, to be able to do that one thing, but that's the whole point of life too, isn't it? To be present for another human being. Yes. Or to be present for a sunset, or the red light, or anything else you can think of, becomes meaningful because you're present for it, not because of what's occurring. And so even something as mundane as describing what you do at work will have more meaning to you. I'm talking about talking to a customer, because you're present for it. And you'll see something, you'll see an expansiveness in this moment regarding subjects that were mundane. That I don't know how I, You'll see a deeper meaning to, most, to the most mundane things and occurrences simply by being present. But yes, that's the point. That's what you're doing here. Mm-hmm. You're, you're basically practicing so you can be present for what another person is saying yes. and all the rest of life. But... That's a good test. Are you, can you actually sit and listen to what another person is saying? Because if you can't, you've lost your mind in that conversation. Not a good thing, not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Just recognize that you've done it. Yeah, yeah. And almost everybody that's ever come to class has come to class with the idea that I just can't, I, for one way or another, I can't stay present in this moment. They, they might think it's just meditation. I have a monkey mind. I need meditation to somehow deal with that. Those that stay realize it's much more than meditation. It's, it's ending this idea of eye-making. It's developing that ability to be present with my life as my life occurs. Mm-hmm. And again, the description is full human maturity. What else is that? But full human maturity. You need to be fully mature if you can be present in this moment. Yeah. That's what we all want, except we're fortunate to know how to do it. Thank you, Andrew. Adam. Morning, John. <coughs> uh... The last time we went through this, last year or whenever it was, um, I got really hung up on the idea of there being these four levels I had that I had to achieve that I was aspiring to, yeah. that I'd have to just like work hard to get to. And when one came after the other, and I came after the other, this, this idea of achievement and um, yep. accumulation. Uh, but now I see it as um, since immediate, it's already in yes. your breathing. It's already in Jhana the yep. moment you start it. They're all there and available. It's an inherent aspect of it. Yeah, and that uh, that's fantastic. That's really refreshing and, um, yeah. and helpful. That, yeah, it, it's and it, I so telling about the Dhamma that you've been coming for a long time. You you put a lot of effort in it, and now you hear something that is even more significant to you, yeah. and you can apply it directly to your practice. Yeah, and again, the, these it's interesting to me. I was just thinking as you were talking, slightly distracted, <laughs> that nobody's ever ever came in here proudly saying, I had the fourth level last night. Because we're practicing it correctly. It's not an achievement, it's just something to recognize. It's good that you had it. But you're the one that's doing it. So, you know, you can go look in the mirror and say, ah, I got the fourth level of jhana. (laughs) But even then, it's a bit of eye-making, isn't it? But it's important in class that we recognize it, too. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Mark, how's your fourth level of jhana? How's your your practice going? (laughs) No, this is great. I um, 
lot of things resonated, but the one thing that really resonated was the idea of the block that I clearly am putting in front of myself with yeah. not um, practicing regularly. I do a lot of other things that are pretty regimented, but this is the one thing that I can't seem to make stick. And now, you know, it's sort of kind of with a little, it was enlightening to, to recognize that, you know, I'm doing that and, yeah. you know, I can undo it. And, you know, so that's. On. Yeah, that, that, Mark, that's, that's the beginning of liberation from your own mind. I mean, you just described how your thinking holds you back from something that you know is a benefit to you. It, it seems like, and you said just now, it, it was, I don't know if that was right, it was surprising that you're holding yourself back. Because it seems like when we got all these things in a busy schedule, I just don't have time for meditation. It seems solid, doesn't it? Like, it's almost impenetrable. I, there's nothing I can do about it. But it's up to you each and every moment how you're living your life. We all, all of us have a lot of obligations and things that we think we have no choice about, but we do. We have a choice about every moment. And we have a choice about how we are going to live each and every moment. Whether it's um, involved in something that we're obligated to do or seemingly like a job or etc. But even there, in, in fact I would say more importantly there, we bring the jhana practice or meditation or dharma practice with us. So that we can do that. But it's important to start where you are, Mark. Recognize that it's on your cushion that you begin to establish the structure of Dhamma practice. So, um, how, how in, in general, how long do you meditate? When you meditate? Um, probably five minutes. And do you, do you ever do that twice a day? I haven't. Okay, try to do it. Um, and do you meditate in general when you, near the time when you first get up in the morning? You know, it's whenever I can sort of, when it dawns on me, I should probably meditate. Um, but I, I don't have a set, a set time. Do your best to build a structure first of meditation practice. And here's what I would suggest. is Start as soon as you can after you wake up in the morning with either a five-minute sit and then another five-minute sit about 12 hours apart. Meaning be, don't meditate just before you go to bed. Uh, a lot of people like that idea thinking that it'll help them get to sleep. But that's usually the focus of that meditation session. You can't wait to get to bed. So about 12 hours later, um, but not right up against uh, your bedtime. Um, if you think that two five-minute sessions are too hard to do in the beginning, cut, cut them down to two, two-and-a-half or three-minute sessions, and that's fine. Um, what's more important than one five-minute sit would be two, two-and-a-half-minute sits. You'll get more out of that. Um, and then gradually build on that. But... Mark, it's up to you. Once you decide to do it, uh, you will do it because you've been able to build structure in other areas of your life, it seems. so. Um, and every, it, it's surprising to me, I think I said it last Tuesday's class, that if someone told you as an adult to go sit and be quiet for five minutes, you would think, yeah, there's nothing to that, and you would do it until you tried to do it. And then you'd realize how hard it is. And so isn't it interesting that an adult human being who should be able to sit for five minutes quietly without getting agitated can't most of us can't we need something going on that's a that's an that's a, an example of a lack of concentration and why wouldn't you want to be able to do that forget everything else why wouldn't you want to be able to sit quietly for a few minutes so look at it that way you're just developing a, a comfortability with sitting being mindful of your breath and then you can build on that and that will support the deepening concentration necessary to bring in the entire eightfold path you think you can do that? I think so. Yeah. I think so. 
Yeah, I think you can. I mean, I, I've never met anybody that set their mind to it that couldn't do it. So you can do it. If you need some encouragement or you want to talk about it at some point, just send me an email. We'll, we'll get together. So I'm glad you joined us today. Good morning, David. Interesting when you take your example of a lottery winner or, or Andrew's need to be able to listen or your need to, well, it was a goal and, you know, Mark's struggles. It's greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. Yep. And then that gentle, gradual progression because of your practice to an awareness. You're, you're aware when you're... Yep averse to that second set and once you start recognizing that that's your concentration and being mindful of that moment and that's the joyful engagement that you're talking about I don't grasp after that joyful engagement but I'm just aware of it yep. and then it's gone and you can live peacefully with, with that that transition from that monkey mind when you first started to this just very subtle awareness that you now just have. It's not a goal, yeah. but it just is now. So, yeah, thank you, thank you David. Great. Yeah, awesome. these, these deepening levels of jhana are not the goal. You know, they're just to be recognized so that we deepen our self assurance that I'm doing this correctly. It really is the only reason that the Buddha teaches us. It's, it's surprising to me now how other traditions make these levels of jhana so magical and mystical when they're just practical. But that, that idea of using my mind to go someplace else was really what intrigued me about meditation in the first place. I thought that was the point. So yes, I'm glad I found out this one. Glad you joined us, Adam. We'll see you soon. Hello, Dhamma Teacher Rome. I forgot to introduce um, David the same way, Dhamma Teacher David. Yeah. It, it's good to see this conversation happening and then go back to the previous sutta where... Ananda is confused about the goal. Yeah, because he nicely. thinks he's going to hmm. he he's going to disappear somehow. Yeah, you know he, he you know how, how do I do this and and still and still still be here. Yeah, and in this sutta you have the Ananda who's after his awakening, and he teaches. Yeah. The development of concentration to this to this man, and 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 what does he emphasize? All these things are fabricated. Yeah. And in the end, we are just sensitive to what's occurring. Yeah. Period. Mm. It's uh, nice to have these two suttas next to each other and, yeah. and see the, the the two faces of of uh, Ananda. Yeah. Yeah, I, thank you for Ron. The the, uh, the structure studies do work out nicely that way. The, the, this is a suit that I've taught in other structured studies, and the the whole point of these structure studies is that we see that we're using basically the same suttas, but to put a certain focus on something. In other words, here, jhana meditation, uh, and it, it is just that. I was so relieved when I finally realized this because I, I was meditating for many years with all kinds of different practices and with intentions and sometimes for hours I mean I used to do sashins for 14 hours a day which is brutal um, and then I found something so simple and pure and gentle and you know it's, it's, it's just like this so uh, 
And all we have to do is do it. So I'll, I'll end it with that. Um, we'll finish with meta as we always do. All right, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, Free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Thank you. Peace. Andrew, please tell Judy I said hello. Yes, I will. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.